Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. I'm tired of feeling like everything is a team or everyone who doesn't agree with you is an enemy. I am tired of feeling that everything is either all the way or nothing. I am just tired. The other day, Nadia Boltz-Weber wrote a grace-filled post. And she writes, I'm not sure that the human psyche developed a hold, feel, and respond to everything that comes at them. Every tragedy, injustice, sorrow, and natural disaster that is happening in every human across the entire planet in real time, every minute of the day. The human heart and spirit were developed to be able to hold and feel and respond to any tragedy, injustice, sorrow, or natural disaster that was happening in our village. And yet, she says, when I check social media, it feels like there are voices saying, if you aren't talking about blank or doing something about this, or posting about whatever it is that's the issue of the day, then you are an irredeemably callous, privileged bigot who is part of the problem. She says, when I am someone who does actually care about human suffering and injustice, someone, she says, I feel the very core to my bones, the images of suffering that we see, it leaves me feeling like absolute blank. There's a word she uses there, but I'm not saying it in church. I'm left wondering whether I'm doing enough, sacrificing enough, giving enough. I'm worried about whether I'm saying enough about all the things that we see going out around in the world around us. And consequently, she says, I'm wondering whether I'm actually a good person or not. No, the answer is always no. No, I am not, nor could I ever be, she says, the person that could respond to all these things. Because no matter what the goal of enough is, we never actually achieve it. For the next few weeks, we're going to be reading through the letter of James to the church. We aren't for sure exactly who James is. Tradition has that James was the brother of Jesus, the first bishop of Jerusalem, and this is a pastoral letter to the church. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wanted to remove James from the Bible because James says that faith without works is dead. You probably remember the Reformation was an attempt to counter unhelpful and at times abusive practices which seemed to indicate that salvation was something that we earn from our works and Luther wanted to hammer home the Christian conviction that salvation and grace alone is what saves us. And that there is nothing that can add to or detract from God's loving grace for us. But James wants to make sure that we just don't stop at that conviction. That being a disciple of Jesus, deciding to follow Jesus, means that life is sometimes going to be hard. James believes that when we are truly being disciples of Jesus, we are going to feel tested. 
I have sort of this feeling that Christians, particularly in America, often kind of know within their very brain that we're supposed to feel some sort of pushback about our faith. So we invent sort of faux controversies so that we can feel like, I'm just like those first Christians. I mean, yeah, they were eaten by lions, but, you know, what I'm going through is just like that. Followers of Jesus are not just meant to be counted. They are to make a difference. They are to, as Jesus would say, bear fruit worthy of this world. Our public witness truly matters. Whether we think it or not, people actually do care about how it is that we respond and think and act in the world. I think sometimes the contempt that people heap upon Christians when we fall short of our calling is because maybe at the core there is this nagging part of them which says they are the ones who bear the light. But let's go back to Nadia's statement about our inability to witness to everything. We can't. We can't. I mean, we just can't. So James calls us in this letter that we're going to be reading through to a life of wisdom and patience. And those things are not valued in today's society. We don't actually want wisdom. We want the person who can respond the quickest. We don't want patience. We have to act right now. Wisdom, patience, faith, those are things that James points to in this letter to, as ways that help us live the life of grace that Christ Jesus calls us to. James does not mince words to those who read this letter. He says, be careful of wealth and the assurances that a comfortable life have for us. He says, be careful of the lures of the world and of the devil. Be careful. James is worried that we are going to spend so much time focusing on things fleeting that we will miss that which is permanent, God. What the world offers us sometimes can seem so attractive, a little bit like a mirage. You go and you run after it and you get there and it's not there. Think of the great Mel Brooks movie, Spaceballs, in which Darth Helmet is trying to get Princess Vespa to leave the safety of her compound and come out, and he makes himself look like her father calling her, and she runs to that thing which she desperately wants, and once she gets it, it turns out that, Darth, that, that her father is really Darth Helmet in that scene. He says to her, ha ha, fooled ya. And this is what wealth and temptation do. We sit there, we look at it, we go, oh, this is the thing that we really want. And we rush after it. And as soon as we get it, we realize it doesn't really fill us. I truly believe that humans are created in the image and likeness of God. I think that each of us have this divine spark within us, but making the right decisions is not always easy, and it's not always always innate. The right thing is something that you have to learn, and it doesn't come naturally. Jesus and Paul sometimes turn to the image of an athlete striving or training as a parallel to our spiritual life. 
Discipleship is not something that is supposed to be easy. It is like someone who is running a marathon who has to practice each and every day. And in that practice, we never forget that God in Christ Jesus has already forgiven us and loves us no matter what, period. Anything that we do or do not do does not detract from that base fact that God loves us and grace is unearned. My friend Father Landon Moore said this week that Adam and Eve didn't comply with the instructions of God. David couldn't keep his zipper zipped. Paul was a murderer. Peter said, Jesus who? The disciples ran a marathon away from Jesus when he was being arrested for a crime against the state because he often got into good trouble. The point is this, is that we have a God who could have decimated humanity because of our sin, killed us because of our past criminal offenses, and yet God says, I love them so much, I'll send myself to them and sacrifice my life so that they may have life. But the point is, is that we have to go deeper into this knowledge of the love that God has for us. This primarily happens through our prayers and our meditation on Scripture and how over time those prayers and this reading of Scripture forms us. Much of my formative religious tradition came in late elementary and middle school years. I attended a Christian school that emphasized many things, things that have served me well over the years. A deep and abiding trust in God, a love of neighbor, a believing in the power of the prayer. But there were aspects of this faith that which were not so positive. Unwittingly, these unattractive parts of this school's faith approach prepared me for the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition. The liturgy helped this ADD kid stay a little bit more focused My teacher might have said, if your mind wanders while praying, it's because you've allowed Satan into your heart. I don't believe that now, but I did at the time. But the patterns and practices, the predictability of the Episcopal Church gave me a comfort that I did not find when I tried to do just faith on my own. While the school I attended looked down upon rote prayers, I found them life-giving Now, forgive me, because I often use this example when I talk about the tradition of prayer in the Episcopal Church. The movie, The Karate Kid, Daniel desperately wants to become a karate master, so he goes to Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi takes him to his place where he uh, lives, and he has him sit there and, and, and sand the floor and paint the fence and wax on, wax off. And Daniel's so frustrated and angry, I just want to learn how to do karate. And unwittingly, what Mr. Miyagi has been doing is teaching him karate, but that those things would become innate and second nature to him. Liturgy and prayer often work in that very same way. Think of it like a lattice in which a plant grows up. It's not the lattice that's important. The lattice allows the plant to sustain and to grow. And that is what liturgy does for us. It is what allows us to bear the weight of the world in which we say, I'm tired. 
Liturgy is there to sustain us in our weakness. We might think of ancient church architecture in which flying buttresses bear the weight of the building. Our prayer operates in a similar fashion. If we look at Acts in chapter 2, the early church is described as devoting themselves to the prayers, not just the prayer. They're devoting themselves to the prayer tradition of the church. And I would argue that we too, in the times in which we are feeling tired, we need to have that, that, that base, that cornerstone in which we can rest upon. In the Jewish tradition and the monastic tradition, they would break up the day with prayer. They would interrupt their day and they would remind themselves that God is the one who's in charge. So when they're sitting there and they're watching the news and it feels overwhelming, when they see pain in the world and they don't know what to do, they can be reminded that God is in charge and we don't have to take it all on ourselves. Prayer is formation. Prayer forms us. Generally, you are the biggest problem in your life. At least that's true for me. And when we just simply just pray on our own devices, we simply just reinforce the things that are already hurting us. Rather, I think James would say in this patience and wisdom that comes through prayer and meditating upon God's word so that we can bear the fruit that God has called us to. Much like how water over time shakes rocks, so too over time does prayer and meditation shape us. It doesn't happen overnight. I don't simply just sit there and say my night prayers and the next day go, wow, everything is good now. But in the midst of the times in which I am feeling the weakest, I know that there is something that will hold me up. My friends, let's devote ourselves to prayer studying and reflecting upon God's holy word so we can be the disciples that Jesus wants us to be. Amen.